sometimes, and for, for us especially, it would be probably impossible to tell the difference between uh, a real dollar bill and a, an expertly made counterfeit dollar bill. It would be very difficult. There are some experts, some forensic experts that are able to look under that microscope and to discern by the type of paper and the stamping the, and all of that, the difference between a real dollar bill and its counterfeit. But to the untrained eye, they look exactly the same. In the same way, I think it was very difficult when our Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry for, for people to really discern, especially in that culture, who was truly a follower of Christ, who was truly a worshiper of Christ. I mean, we know Anna and Simeon, remember the, the, that older couple in the temple that longed for the redemption of Israel and when they saw the baby, they knew and they held him in his arms and they worshipped him and they followed him and they loved him. And I think we're convinced that Mary and Joseph, for example, were uh, truly believed the scriptures and trusted that Jesus was the one and were willing to humble themselves and submit to follow this little one. But as Jesus grew up and became very, very popular and word was on the street that he was healing many and impacting physically that, um, those people, there were many, many disciples of Jesus in his early ministry. Did you hear that? There were many, many disciples of Jesus in his early ministry. That is, they were disciples, they were learners. There were many who truly wanted to learn from him. There are many who truly were following him. But I think the thrust of this very first sermon uh, that is that is lengthy and quoted in the book of Luke is, to, is where Jesus is trying to show the people. He's trying to, to show them what does it really look like? How do you discern discipleship? What does it really look like if you're going to be a follower of me? Many were following him. Are you a genuine disciple of Christ? Have you been forgiven? Have you been born again? And how do you tell the difference between a genuine disciple and a counterfeit disciple? I think that's the very heart of this sermon in Luke chapter 6. I want you to take your Bibles and turn back to Luke chapter 6, page 1027. If you have a Bible in the pew back in front of you. Luke chapter 6, and the sermon will begin in verse 20. Okay? So verse 20, now I want you to just, now that you're there, just go back to verse 17. Let's go back to verse 17, and it says this, Jesus came down with them, with the twelve apostles who were just chosen, and stood on a level place, and there was, watch this, a large crowd of his disciples. And a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. Then verse 20, and turning his gaze towards his what? Whom? Turning his gaze towards his disciples. We're not talking about the 12 apostles, although they would be listening, wouldn't they? He is speaking to the large crowd of would-be disciples and followers of Jesus, and he began to say to them, there was a crowd of people there, 
They were listening in. There were the 12 apostles. They were listening in. But he's speaking to the large crowd of those who would claim to be disciples of Christ. And I can imagine some of those followers, I think, were probably truly saved. Some of those, those disciples probably were on the fence. Some of his followers there were probably there for the wrong reason, perhaps just for physical healing. Some of his followers were on the edge of commitment and decision. Some of his followers were really confused because of the scribes and the Pharisees and the external religiosity that was just so part of that culture. And they were full of confusion. And so there were true disciples and there were false disciples in that day. And that was true then, very clearly, and that is just as true now. And that is the thrust of the very first sermon that is quoted in length in the book of Luke. And so let's read verses 20 through 26 as Jesus begins this sermon. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. There Jesus goes, the first lengthy quoted. Let me tell you, there's two ways, the blessed one and the cursed one. The true prophet, the false prophet, he's trying to make a distinction. What He's speaking to his disciples. What does a true disciple look like? Jesus is the master teacher. This is a master sermon, probably the most powerful sermon ever preached in the history of the world. And he wants us to understand. He doesn't want us to be in the dark. He doesn't want us to be confused on this. He wants us to know that a true disciple has been humbled by God, which leads to happiness in God. And this humble happiness will manifest itself to the world. There are only two categories in his first sermon. There are the true disciples, the blessed ones, and the false disciples. One is the path and place of eternal blessing, And the other is the path and place of eternal woe, of eternal cursing. There is no middle ground. There there is no in-between. And Jesus wants us to know this. Jesus wants to be clear about this. He wants to know if we are truly his follower. He's going to get at the heart of it. He's going to get beyond the shell of external religion of the day. He's going to crack it right open. He's going to spill the yoke. And he's going to show the heart of true Christianity, what does it really mean to be a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ? Was there confusion back then? Is there confusion now? So this morning, we're going to be looking at the evidence of true discipleship from verses 20 through 23. And the next time, we will compare that to the evidence of false discipleship in verses 24 through 26. So this morning then, the evidence of true discipleship. If you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you are set. You have everything. You are, well, as the text says, you are blessed. Uh... What does that look like? How does that manifest? Be glad and leap around for joy if you are a true disciple of Christ. The most prominent Luke scholar, 
his name's Bach, says of this concept, concept of beatitude or blessing, quotes, what does that blessing mean? Declaring someone happy, contented, blessed, or fortunate, end quotes. The idea is to be filled with joy because of something given to you from God's hand. You are the blessed one. I like what one pastor said about this term, blessed quotes, refers to those in the most beneficial, the most favored position who experience true well-being that comes from a right relationship to God, end quotes. Here's the deal. Listen, kids, listen. You just want to be a true disciple of Christ. I mean, you, you just want to be a true disciple of Christ. You may have a bad job in this world dead-end job. You hate your work. You hate getting up. You have Sunday night blues on steroids. You hate your life, your job, but you just want to get this right. Jesus is saying you just want to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. You may be alone in this world, have no one, no friends, no spouse, no money, nothing. You may have nothing in this world, but you want to get this right, Jesus is saying. You want to get this one thing right. You want to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. You want to be in this place of eternal blessing. You may be alone with nothing, the dead-end job, but you got to get this right. You got to get this right. This is what Jesus is saying. So, this morning we're going to look at four evidences. Here you go. How do I tell? Sounds important. Sounds like I better get this right. What are four evidences of true discipleship from this passage? We need to go quickly. Number one, the blessed one is, are you ready? The destitute one. You say, what does destitute mean? It's a big word. It means without means uh, of substance. Uh, what is substance? Well, lacking food, clothing, and shelter. So the very basics, if you are destitute, you are a beggar. You have nothing and you're in danger of death. You're destitute. So who is blessed then? The text says, blessed are you who are poor. And Jesus is not speaking about materially poor, physically poor in this passage about discipleship and salvation. Whether you have money or no money doesn't bring you any closer to God at all. What Jesus is talking about is spiritual poverty. Yes, we'll see in the book of Luke and in other places that it's true. If you have a lot of cash and you depend upon it, uh, and at least it in respect to horizontally, it seems to keep you from the cross of Christ because you trust in yourself. I get it. I get it when you're destitute physically that it would seem that you would be more open to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that's not his point. I don't even want to go there. This is spiritual poverty. The parallel passage in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall see God. So, how do you know, then, if you're a true disciple? First, the blessed one is the spiritually destitute one. Spiritually poor. A spiritual beggar. The best way to, to illustrate this is to maybe think of blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was a beggar. He was blind, and so he couldn't work for himself. And so how... How he met his needs to eat was by begging. He was blind, so he would sit by the side of the road on the outside of Jericho. He would sit there, and he'd have a nice baggy robe on that would be a place for alms to be tossed. And he would beg for his sustenance. He couldn't see. He couldn't do anything to feed himself. Now think about spiritually. He could do nothing to save himself. Nothing to help yourself. The poor in spirit know they cannot earn salvation. They cannot work for it. 
So they beg God. They beg God for mercy. They are broken. They are blind. They are hopeless. They are helpless. They are needy. They know that they are in trouble. They know that they have no righteousness. They know that God requires that righteousness and they have it not. And they don't know where to get it. They can't figure it out. They can't buy salvation. Their gas tank is on empty. They have nothing. And they beat their breast with tears streaming down their cheeks, going to God and say, God, be merciful to me. The sinner, save me. I'm helpless and hopeless. This is the evidence that you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. There was a time in your life You're broken before God. You felt the burden of sin. And you found no hope of salvation in your own efforts, your own righteousness, or your own works. None at all. No ceremony, no work, no background in your family, no nothing will you offer before a holy God. You are broken and desperate and hopeless. And that is the fundamental aspect of a true disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a very painful position to be in, akin to being poor. It is. It's not fun. It's not fun that day when God's calling you and you're feeling it, this position of humility before God. But that is the blessed position, the heart of true discipleship. The one blessed is the spiritually destitute one. But why do I call him blessed? Well, For yours is the kingdom of God. And when they when the Jews when they heard the word kingdom, it wasn't a beggar. It was fruit and it was abundance and it was life and it was wholeness and satisfaction. All of that. Not just spiritual on a cloud. All the physical was poured into the mind of the readers of Jesus as well. All the blessing. Yours is the kingdom of God. Low in spirit now, but exalted in glory forever. No wonder you're called blessed because yours is the kingdom of God. Is, present tense, brothers and sisters, already you are spiritually in the kingdom, a kingdom citizen. Already you can experience the joy of the kingdom, the joy and peace in believing. But then, not yet, is a fullness coming of the kingdom. One day you will rule with him over the nations. One day you will rule angels. You will be free and unfettered to serve and to worship and to explode with your redeemed mind ways to be creative and to travel and to glorify the God of the universe. Days without end. Blessed are you who are poor now for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to get this right? Secondly, First, blessed is the destitute one. Secondly, the blessed one is the, and it's really related, you'll see. It's really related. Blessed one is the hungry one. The hungry one. In verse 21, blessed are you who what? Hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. So who is blessed? Jesus wants us to know who is blessed. The hungry one spiritually. It's not physical hunger. It's a spiritual hunger. So blind Bartimaeus might have been destitute and poor in spirit sitting there, but he is hungry for some alms. Give me something. Throw it here. Oh, and he hears on the street Jesus' voice. He, 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 is it him? Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. He would not be stopped. He cried out, Son of David, And by the way, what does Jesus do? Jesus stopped. That's the hunger. He knows he's broken. He knows he's poor, but he's not content with that. If you're a true believer, you aren't content in your brokenness. You got to be satisfied. You got to be filled. You got to be touched. You feel that burden. You have to have it lifted. If you have the lack of righteousness, you can't earn it. Tell me where I can get the righteousness that God requires. This is a spiritual hunger. It's a hunger to be forgiven. It's a hunger to be touched by Jesus. It's a longing to break free out of the jail bars of sin. It's a longing. It's a hunger. It's a thirsting. It's an aching 
to be free. Listen to these verses on spiritual hunger from Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So when you do not have what God requires to be with him in heaven, you hunger for it. You're just like a poor, destitute beggar would hunger for a meal. You hunger for what you need. Matthew in the parallel passage in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you're not convinced. For righteousness, the righteousness that I do not have, I need it. Blessed one is the hungry one. How do you know that you're a true disciple? You have hungered for acceptance with God. You have hungered for acceptance with God and you knew you couldn't do it. (laughs) So you pleaded with God as a starving beggar spiritually. For as one has said, you are, quotes, longing for the righteousness that you cannot obtain on your own, end quotes. It's not fun to be that hungry spiritually, but blessed is the hungry one. Why? Why are they blessed? For you shall be satisfied. The idea of satisfied is not you being satisfying yourself, it's God It's a passive verb. God is the actor here. You will be satisfied from God alone. God alone has to give you what you need. That's the gospel. You can't earn it. He's got to give it to you. Your satisfaction is found in God alone. This word for satisfied, you guessed it, is a word for eating. It was used of livestock, which I felt a little bit insulting, but that's okay. It's a good illustration. It was used for life. This word for satisfaction is, is used for fattening up animals. And, and, and the farmer would make them eat and eat and eat until they were, couldn't eat anymore. This is that word for satisfaction. You apply this to us and you eat and one's fill until you're satisfied, until you are full. I'm trying to illustrate that. And the only way I can illustrate that is to think of the day after Thanksgiving for our family. The day after Thanksgiving, we have a fondue, and we marinate chicken, and we marinate uh, steak, and we have potatoes, and we have, we have cheese that we dip in egg and breadcrumbs and double dip it, and then we put it in, and we have deep-fried cheese, and we do all of this, and we slow down, and we do it for a long time. We're not rushed out of the table, and the music is on, and it's warm in the house, And we're taking a break and we're together as a family and we're just eating slowly until we fill up and fill up. And we are at that moment the best meal of the year with joy and communion and friendship and family. This is just a small vapor of the satisfaction that we are promised for those who hunger now. It's a small little picture of it. This is the joy set before us when God himself, who does all things well, will satisfy us with good things for his right hand, our pleasures forevermore. The psalmist said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The prophet to Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31 verse 14, my people are satisfied with my goodness. The blessed one is the hungry one now. And we long for that day. We long for the wedding feast. We long to see Jesus. We long for him. And we can relate to Paul, that longing right now in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him as his death. We long for Jesus, the true disciple. The blessed one is the hungry one now. And the promise is wonderful. You will be satisfied. Do you hunger like that? 
Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you long for more and can't wait for more of him? That is what Jesus is saying. If that is not you, if at all, if that is not you, Jesus is saying, listen, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. The third evidence that you are a blessed true disciple of Jesus, the blessed one is goes from bad to worse here. The blessed one is the sad one or the weeping one, if you like that better. He goes on, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. So who is blessed? The blessed one, the true disciple, finds that right now there's a, there's a, there's a spiritual sadness Because now for the believer is a time of exile. And yes, there was a time initially when we came to Christ, and you remember that time in your life when you just felt sad and hopeless and helpless, but then you saw that Jesus was your hope and you came to him. There's that initial sadness. But listen, we are still weepers today, believer, true disciples mourn now. If you're a true disciple, you're going, because you've not yet fully been redeemed. Because you feel it, the remainders of indwelling sin. You hate it. And there's this battle now within that you never had before between the light and the darkness. There's this painful process of sanctification and growth that's sorrowful. And we hate our sin, aren't we? We hate it. We're sorry for our sin. Listen, kids, when you're a Christian, you don't just hate your sin because you got caught by mommy or daddy and it cost you something adult. You don't just hate your sin because your boss caught you stealing the, the pens and you got caught. No, you hate your sin because it's a... Sin against God. That doesn't, doesn't just make you unpopular and cost your pocketbook. It's a sin against God. The true disciple, there's a sadness. There's a sadness in my life that I'm beset by certain sins that show up at the most inopportune times. Is anybody sad like I am? that we fall short of the glory of God, that we're such a mixed bag of inconsistent stops and starts, fits of growth and all of that. We're sad that we're not yet like Jesus Christ. There's a sorrow that we live in a cursed world with a cursed work, with the curse of COVID, with the curse of broken relationships, with the curse of corrupt culture. The curse of deceptive politics, and on and on it goes. We weep for this broken world. We weep for the broken relationships that we have caused. We weep for our family and friends who are broken and turning their back on God. We weep because God's name is being dishonored. We, we, reap, we weep because the church is under attack. We weep as his glory is drugged through the mud. We weep at how stupid sin has made us. We weep at how much a mess we are in because of our sinful choices. We weep for broken families. We weep over loneliness. We weep over rejection. We weep over sex trafficking. We weep over divorce. We weep over betrayals. We weep. There are souls all around us that are going to hell. Those that we love and they're turning their back on Jesus Christ. True believers weep now. They do. But they are the blessed ones because for you shall laugh. Isn't that a great line in light of this? For you shall laugh. Spiritually grieving even now, we know that our future is a future of laughter. In fact, even now we're commanded to joy as we set our hearts on the hope to be revealed to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even now as we 
fix our eyes upon the promises, we can be filled with joy now but not yet. Oh, there's a day coming when, when the joy won't be in fits and starts, when the joy will be full and unfettered and forever. That is our hope. Smiles and laughter with grief gone and tears wiped away. And those who are true believers feel the pain and the tears, but they hope for that joy. They read things like Revelation 21. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And they read that with hope and joy. Oftentimes as tears are literally streaming down their faces with all that we're walking through. How do you discern discipleship? This is what Jesus is doing. He's not messing around. This is the first lengthy sermon quoted in the book of Luke. This is what Jesus wants to do in the book of Luke. This is his whole point, to seek and to save the lost. How do you discern if you're a true disciple, a blessed disciple of Jesus? Well, spiritually you felt that you're destitute. You felt your hunger and the satisfaction can come only in Jesus. And you're the spiritual weeping one. But then you realize yours is the kingdom. You will be satisfied. And you will laugh and that forever. And you're filled with joy. This is the heart of true discipleship. This is what genuine conversion looks like. This is the blessed man Jesus wants us to know. He's trying to answer your questions. He's trying to make it clear. He doesn't like people being deceived. He doesn't like that he's got all those would-be disciples packing out to see his healing, to hear about that, confused by the Pharisees and false religion. He wants to be clear. He wants to sort it out. What does it look like to truly be a follower of Christ? He's tired of the hypocrisy already in this book and he wants us to understand that the true disciple has been given a heart that is humble before God and that is happy in God and that humble happiness guess what might be spiritual but it's going to get real physical it's going to get real physical and that will manifest in this world it will show up and when it shows up from time to time it's not going to be good so it gets even crazier. Jesus says the last evidence, the final evidence of a truly blessed disciple is, is that a blessed one is a persecuted one. A persecuted one. Take a look at it in the text. And this one he spends the most time on, which I find interesting. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. I mean, okay, let's just stop for a second really quickly. It, how opposed is this to the world's system of happiness? <laughs> okay, all right, let me get this straight. weeping, hungry, and hated. Oh, happy, happy, happy. Blessed one is the persecuted one. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Happy when you're hated. This is persecution. Persecution is going to manifest, right, for those who are true disciples of Jesus Christ. Not every day. Hear me on this. The text is clear. Not every day, not even most days perhaps. The text says, blessed are you 
when. It's a specific time. Blessed are you when. And be glad in that day. Thankfully, it's not constant, but it is real. This persecution for all true disciples of Jesus Christ. And he, he uses four emphatic terms describing this persecution. Number one, um, hatred. Hatred. There's something about this world system, this religious system, this world system that will hate humility and brokenness before God. It hates any talk of inability that God must save. It hates that. It's, it, it hates the idea that we cannot do anything to earn acceptance with God, that we must... It's a hatred of that. And if you weep over the brokenness of this world of sin, if you do something about this world of sin and stand upon the truth, if you don't hide your light under a bushel, make no mistake about it, men will hate you. Think about all of the other countries of the world. Is it illegal to kill Christians in the U.S.? All God's people shouted, yes. In the countries where it's not illegal, what happens? Think about it. In the countries where it's not illegal, what happens? People hate the truth. They don't want the law of Christ imposed upon them. They want to live by their rules. They want to live by their experience. They want to live by their emotions. They want to live for themselves. They want religion on the shelf taken off in Christmas and Easter. They want their best life now. That's what they want. And if you're not going to applaud that and celebrate that, if you'd ever even challenge that with the tears streaming down your cheek, you will be hated. And what will that look like? Secondly, you'll be ostracized. That's what the hatred looks like. What does ostracized mean, kids? It means you'll be excluded. People won't like you anymore, and they'll, they, won't let you, they won't want to play with you. You'll be excluded. Adults, they won't like you either, and they'll exclude you. The idea here, what Jesus is saying, is social separation. In that culture in Jesus' day, it would mean things like this, being excommunicated out of the synagogue. They can't go to the synagogue. They're put out because of Jesus, which means they lost their house. Often they'd lose their family. They'd lose their social impact. They'd lose their job. They'd lose everything. The Hebrew Christians hated that. We're going to go back to Moses. We can't stand. We're losing everything. And the author of the Hebrews says, hold fast. Hold fast. There's a city coming. It's going to be worth it. Hold fast. The whole message of the New Testament. You will be ostracized and hated. We haven't had it in this culture. We're not used to it. So third, they're going to revile you. The third instead is slandering or revile. That's a verbal attack where your name or your reputation is scorned as evil. For example, in those days, the Christians were called what? Cannibals under the reign of Nero because they took the Lord's Supper and it was misunderstood purposely in order to throw them. And so they were slandered as weird cannibals. In our day, what happens to your reputation if you refuse to put your pronouns in your email when everybody else does? How about if you refuse to celebrate a marriage between two men and you say and you just are for, put on the spot in front of people saying are you going to go to the wedding and see what you're going to say you're darned if you say one thing you're darned if you say the other thing you, so you say nothing how do you think that goes well and how about if you refuse to laugh at that joke teens listen to me you laugh at that joke want to fit in at work don't you feel burdened by that? I do. You do. If you're a believer, you're like, oh, Lord, that's not me. I don't want that anymore. Help me. But if you do take a stand, there's a cost. What if you refuse to go to the drinking party? 
Your name will be cast out as evil. And the name is your reputation. Your reputation will be attacked. The blessed and happy true disciple of Jesus is hated, ostracized, insulted, and the name is scorned as evil. Now watch this. Look at why at the end of verse 22. This is important. This is really important. Um, Scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Now, it's for the sake of Jesus. Don't take it so personally. It's for Jesus. Listen carefully. Don't mistake suffering for the sake of the Son of Man, for suffering for being and being ill-treated because you're rude, because you're nosy, because you're demanding, because you're insensitive, because you're argumentative, because you're thoughtless, because you're frankly obnoxious, and because you're critical. Don't mistake suffering for the sake of the name for those things. No, this is suffering here for the sake of Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes is right, quote, sad but true, Christians are often persecuted not for their Christianity, but for their lack of it, end quotes. The blessed true disciple is persecuted not because of their stand, they're, pers- they're persecuted because of the stand of the Son of Man. It's our love for Jesus. It's our, it's our insisting that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. It's pointing people to Jesus as the only way of salvation. What? The only way? It's claiming that without Jesus, we are broken and helpless and hopeless and we are going to eternal hell. Eternal hell. What loving God? It's our association with the claims of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to persecution. We are not better than our master if we are going to be true followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus ended up Starting with a multitude of disciples, he ended up pretty much alone, naked and bleeding upon the tree. And our lot is no greater than the Son of Man. Jesus himself said as he was preparing to go for the cross in John chapter 15, verse 18, the world hates you. You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And the whole early church, the book of Acts, is a record of it. It is. John MacArthur in his commentary details it. I'll just give you a few. His disciples would be severely punished in the courts and the synagogues. Families would be divided. Herod murdered James, the brother of John. Stephen was martyred. And on and on it goes. The true disciple is the persecuted one. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So make no mistake about it, this spiritual hungering that, that we're talking about is going to manifest in the world, in the real world with real words and with real actions against believers because this humility before God that, le- that is happiness in God is sometimes going to lead to humiliation before men. Let me say that again. This humility before God and this happiness in God that we have in Christ will sometimes lead to humiliation in the hands of men. And you know what's shocking? Jesus says that's happiness. You know what he says? He says, verse 23, be glad. What? Be glad in that day and leap for joy. This is a picture in the word of exuberance and exhilaration. It's the idea, think of the cold winter. 
and a young calf that's cooped up all winter with really moldy hay and lack of sun. The farmer's got him in there. It's keeping him alive. But the spring has come, and it's the day to be let out. And this, this calf is finally going to get fresh hay. He's going to be let out into the sunlight. And he's let out, and he literally just bounces around, hops around in the fields with joy. This is the word here. This is what Jesus is saying for a true disciple. When we are persecuted for Christ... Bounce around like a new, but like a calf on a spring, sunshiny day. Why? How in the world? Two reasons. For reason number one, for behold, that means he wants us to see it. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. You have to understand in God's economy, listen, there's suffering before glory. Am I right? Therefore, those who suffer most for Christ will be more glorified and enjoy the new heavens and the new earth more. That is good theology. Think about Jesus Christ. How much did he suffer? How much will he be glorified? This is not about reward for earning salvation. This is about reward in heaven because my God is not blind. He is not blind. He walks with me. He sees it. And there will be a day of recompense. And I believe what the Scriptures say as Paul expounds the words of Christ in two places. In Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.17, that momentary light affliction. Now listen, listen, this is reward momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal rejoice number one for behold Jesus says, your reward is great in heaven. And Paul the apostle blows that up in his epistles as he did all of the words of Christ. The second reason we are to rejoice and bounce around like a calf released in the spring when we're hated, ostracized, and scorned for the sake of the Son of Man is at the end of verse 23. For, that's a reason, the word for is a reason, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Not the false prophets like the end of verse 26. No, no. This, help us, this is helping us to distinguish between the true and the false. No, you will be like the faithful man of God who proclaimed the word of God in the past. You will be like Jeremiah of old who preached the word of God faithfully and was persecuted and thrown into pits. You will be like the prophets who were executed and sawn in two. You will be like the great heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 who clung to the living Christ in verse 36 of Hebrews 11 with mockings and scourging. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And they, like Abraham of old, welcomed these promises from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For all those prophets of old, they're like Abraham. And they're like every true disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were looking, and they are looking, and they continue to look for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And they are just not content with this world. They're not. 
They're not content with this world. Here's the message of Jesus' first term. Discern about discipleship. Discern about discipleship. The true disciple is humble before God and therefore happy in God. And this humble happiness may not go over very well in a dark and dying world. The blessed one knows his need be now listen, the blessed one knows his need before God. He hungers for this righteousness and forgiveness of, from God and weeps when he and the whole world falls short of it. But this one right now has the kingdom and can be glad right now. He can leap for joy even when persecuted like the apostles of old in Acts chapter 5 who were flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus and then they were released. And they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You know why? For they were blessed disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you his disciple? That is the question that Jesus is pressing home. Do not sleep tonight until you have that answered. You don't have to earn it. In fact, the whole point is realizing you can't and coming to the one who has earned it all in your place. Come to him broken and find your righteousness. Find your forgiveness. May the Lord give you discernment. Dear Christian, be encouraged from Jesus' sermon. Now will not last forever. Dear friend, be warned. Now will not last forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I'm praying to you now, thanking you for, in respect of humanity, the incredible sermon that you preach and the power of the Holy Spirit as the God-man and how you really loved people enough to help them to discern if they were true followers of Christ. And Father, as we continue through this message, may we continue to learn layer upon layer. And may as true believers, all of us are falling short of this and rest in the righteousness of Christ. May even as true believers, may make us to be spiritually hungry now. Make us to hate our sin. Make us to stand for the name of Christ. Father, this is our very heart. This is our longing and we know it's only produced by you. So continue to work what you have already worked out in us, what you have already worked in by your grace, that we would shine our light before this world. And Father, if there's someone here who says, you know, I'm just not a Christian, this convinces me. Well, help them not to despair, but to, to come to Jesus today and say, I need you, Jesus, save me. Because I know that you will. Because for all who come to you, you will no wise cast out. And you say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, I pray for rest. 